0: So this morning, we are taking up um, the question of what sin is our biggest problem? And when you read a text like that, you might have certain preconceived notions of what it might be, but it might surprise you. You know, um, I mean, you ask someone what sin's our biggest problem, people might say, well, I, you know, don't murder people. Right? It seems like um, one of the biggest things we think is murdering is bad. I hope you all agree with that. Um, so yeah, that's an obvious one. But I I want to be honest here, because in reality, the biggest sin is the root of all sins. The root of our problem of sin itself. And what is that? Well, you see in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan got them to not trust God anymore. and that brought about sin, death, and brokenness into our world. And the, the reason people think, oh well, it's a fruit. Why would God do that? Is God a mean making some fruit and that's so bad that they ate a fruit. It's not the issue of the fruit. It was the heart behind the fruit. It was not trusting God. It was believing Satan over God. It was trusting Satan and what he said over what God said. And so that's where all sin comes from. This is a, a picture of how humanity is. This is a picture of what it's like for us. Because we don't trust God. I don't trust God many times. And so uh, that's a that's source of our agony, that's a source of our sin, is not fully believing the gospel, not fully believing God and his promises, not trusting what he says is best for us in his word. And so that is really Paul's, and it's missed because you got a lot of stuff going on, um, but that's missed oftentimes when people read Romans chapter one, human beings, because of their rejection and not trusting in God, are handed over to other sins, unbelief, produces sin and dysfunction into our lives. And he describes it here in the lives of unbelievers. Um, And uh, Christians oftentimes will want to pick on certain sins mentioned here while missing the entire point of the section. The source of all sins itself. And I'm going to read kind of the larger context here so we can really get a good idea as to what Paul is really hitting at here. Um, Because as you read it in context, you see that all of these sins are tied to the root of all sins, which is unbelief. So, first, almost start all the way up to verse 22. Kind of give us the big breath of this text here. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, and animals, and creeping things. So they're exchanging God's glory. They're no longer trusting in him, and they're, exchange, they're trusting in idols. There's an exchange going on, a truth exchange. They're exchanging God for idols. They're not trusting in God when you have an idol. So that's very clear. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. So because of this idolatry, they are given up because of this idolatry these sins result therefore god gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about god for a lie see that's the crux right there it's not trusting god it's it's following an idol rather than god and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen and then its continuation of thought for this reason for the reason of unbelief for the reason of not trusting in God. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature, referring to lesbian activity here. Verse 27, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So unbelief produces sinful activity produces in the sinful activity is harmful because it's outside of God's ultimate design here. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then after this verse, he goes into every sin you could ever imagine. Like a, a, a just a, a shopping list of sins. And so you see this pattern here. Um, he's not picking on one sin, but he's going through all the sins that a person can commit. And that this is all resultant from unbelief. Um, that is a source of our problems, is not worshiping and trusting the one true God. And if you read the section, you, you can understand many people get very frustrated with what the Bible teaches here um, about uh, gay people, for instance. And what they'll say is that, that texts like these are used and have been used to persecute, to abuse, to be harmful to, to say nasty things to, to mistreat um, the gay community. And while I'm sure there are Christians that have done that, Christianity, the Bible itself, does not teach, I want to be very clear about this, the Bible does not teach, endorse, or give a thumbs up to abusing, discriminating, hurting, or mistreating gays or anyone in the LGBT community. Because the Bible teaches we shouldn't do that to anyone, let alone gay people. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to love, care, and serve our neighbors, and that includes your gay neighbors. Just as we are called to love and care for our Hindu neighbors, so we are called to love and serve our gay neighbors. So we as Christians are to be like the good Samaritan and the good Samaritan had ideological differences with the person he helped as Samaritans did in general. They had bad views of God in the Bible and yet we are still to be kind even though we have differences with how people think about things. And so the Bible cannot be used here as an excuse to mistreat and denigrate or hurt um, people, gay people. But uh, what a person is going to point out here is as you read this text, it becomes very obvious, becomes very clear that um, they'll say, well, the Bible here is not being gay affirming by what it says. Um, And, you know, I'm just being honest with you. That is the number one question I get when people email and ask questions about the church. They ask me um, all the time, are you an LGBTQ affirming church? Whether or not we affirm their lifestyle. And, um, I can understand this concern, I mean, when you read Romans 1, it uses some pretty intense language here, like due penalty, error, I mean, it gets really, really intense, it escalates very quickly, but the issue behind that question that it fails to fully grasp and realize is that the Bible doesn't affirm anybody's lifestyle, to be frank, the Bible doesn't affirm anyone, it says every single one of us are broken, sinful train wrecks. And that is Paul's point here in Romans 1 throughout the entire book. Everyone is bad. No one is good. And if you keep on reading, you're going to see in Romans one twenty-eight through 32, Paul wants to make sure that he doesn't miss any of us on this list here. You might relate to some of the things on this list. I, I know I do. And since they did not see fit, this is uh, Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Very similar language to that we just read of uh, gay relations previously. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Who doesn't do that, right? Gossips, I mean, that's like a very common sin in our culture. You know, you're, you don't want to have to tell something to someone's face. So you, you kind of unload on your best friend. There's slanders. Man, we love to say negative things about people. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Who isn't like that? Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's something that no one's ever kept, okay? Let's just say. <laughs> It's hard developmentally, right? Uh, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things kind of escalates here, the heats up a bit. Deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, that is something that you're not going to read in a fortune cookie, right there. <laughs> Probably not. We have all committed sins like this, and so we all deserve death, as it says. We deserve maximal justice, but thank God for Jesus. He's took that justice in our place, and so we can have eternal life and harmony and communion with the Lord. But um, as I have said, Paul just keeps on pushing the envelope here on being unaffirming, disaffirming of pretty much everybody. In Romans 3, 9 through 13, if you thought you were good, this will destroy it. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, religious people and non-religious people, is what he's saying in the context, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Definitely not a love letter you want to write to your wife there. That's some pretty harsh poetry. It just comes at you, you know? It's definitely the opposite of uh, Stuart Smalley's daily affirmations. You know, you, the guy in the SNL, you're good enough and you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you. That's the opposite of that. Like if you're, that's like as opposite as Stuart Smalley or any self-help book than you can ever imagine, right? Right there. And so yeah, the Bible gives us no grounds whatsoever to be self-righteous, or be smug, or prideful. It's just like a wrecking ball on those things. And so it's amazing. That's why Jesus came after the religious leaders so much, because there's no room for any of us to see, oh, well, you're, you have that problem. I'm obviously superior. There's just Paul wrecks and destroys that mentality. Um, and he does it so that we can only not, we, we can't find any righteousness in ourselves, but only righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the only lifestyle that's affirmed in Scripture is Jesus. And so the Bible, as you can see, is this like massive, great equalizer of all people. We're all bad. Y'all need Jesus. And so Paul is not picking on gay people here. He is picking on literally everybody so that they can find Jesus Christ. Now, people might say, well, you know, he calls it unnatural, Nate. That's so you know, terrible and I just can't believe he said that. Doesn't say that about other things as much. Why does he really go after it and use really intense language here? Um, and so what people have said is that Paul is kind of like the bad cop and Jesus is a good cop, you know, like Paul is this like, you know, well that's Paul you know, he says all the mean and nasty stuff. He's a really bad guy, you know, that's going to hurt people's feelings, you know. Um, he's kind of a Debbie Downer, you know, that's Paul. And But Jesus is not like that. He's a, you know, a hippie, sandal wearing, rainbow unicorn, Barney loving, tap dancing, you know, hippie, you know. He, Jesus is, he, he's all rainbows and gummy drops. He's all good feels here. So it's all Paul's problem. Clearly it's not Jesus, right? But the issue is you look at Jesus and Jesus affirms marriage between a man and a woman he says the only alternative to that to to that design that God has made for us to flourish and enjoy uh communion with the Lord better is celibacy and this is in the words of Jesus Christ Jesus who called the religious leaders a brood of vipers not so Mr. Rogers there is he and so he says, and the Pharisees came as the self-righteous religious people, came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, this is God's design for them, and made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What... Therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. So that's God's design. And there's many deviations from that design, as we'll see. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. That's not God's original design, excuse me. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said ah, and to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Bet they weren't thinking they have the most healthiest marriages there or something. Goodness gracious, the disciples. Um, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So this is this is someone becoming a spiritual eunuch as being abstinent, being celibate. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So speaking in spiritual terms, it's saying the only Godly alternative to marriage between a man and a woman for physical intimacy to be expressed, anything else as a natural is celibacy. That's God's plan. And I understand this is very difficult to hear and we have to be compassionate understanding. this is hard to hear. Jesus is saying, challenge me oftentimes, oftentimes, all the time. Um, you might be saying, well oh, gosh, Nate, I mean, don't you understand? This is how God created them to be. God created them to be gay. They were born this way. This is how God intended them to be ideally. How can you say they are to remain celibate? That's so unfair. This is how God made them, created them. This is how they were born. And this statement um, misunderstands a classic Christian teaching in the fall. Um, the fall is very interesting, and people often forget it all the time, that everything around us is not how it intended to be. Um, I remember my wife and I, she told me to tell the story, but you know, I, I have problems. Um, you know, we were in South Carolina and we were doing a natural birth class. I don't know if you guys ever done those before. Those are really a lot of fun for people. And um, it was really an experience, let me tell you. And um, she, I was paying all this money for this lady to tell us that we should eat chickens that are spaced out properly. I'm like, this is about natural birth, right? And she was a Christian and she made a comment, I couldn't believe, and because it just so, people always forget about the fall. They just assume everything's perfect, this is how it's supposed to be. Look around, it's things are not how they're supposed to be. Like at all. Um, And she was saying, she's like, well, you know, God created you to give birth without any pain at all. This is how God designed you to be. So you know what? And she was kind of shaming the women. Like, if you go through pain, you're not doing it correct in this very kind of shaming kind of way. She's like, you know, God created uh, women to give birth and it should be painless. And you know, she she gave an example of this. There was a woman out in the field of Africa. She didn't know that childbirth was supposed to to cause pain. She was just taking a stroll one day and a baby just popped out. And she's like, oh, look, I have a baby here, no pain it's like I don't first of all I don't believe that story but she's a forgetting the fall the fall brings ruin and brokenness things are not the way they're supposed to be right I mean my wife had pain with Abigail very bad pain. Uh, Kenny had pain too, she just, but he just flew right out. So, you know, that's, that's how it goes sometimes. But the other one was still painful. I mean, who says it's not painful? But see, she's forgetting the fall. Christians forget the fall. We are not designed and functioning the way we're supposed to be. Anybody who's aging can tell you that. Things fall apart, okay? And that includes how we are born. The Bible teaches that we are born conceived in brokenness and in sin. Things are not the way they ought to be when you are born. We're all born a little messed up. I I know it's going to affect project self-esteem, but it's true. It is true. Psalm uh, 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Hebrew word for, for conceive is the very first point by which a woman is pregnant. So right when you were brought into the world, right when you were conceived, you were brought forth a you had sin and iniquity on you. And I realize this doctrine can be very difficult um, to believe, but it becomes really easy to believe when you have children, very easy. You know, I'm such an honest person. I never taught Abigail the lie, she did it naturally. And I never taught Kenny to like the Hulk and smash things. He turned out that way. It must be like some weird, like Irish blip in his mind. But anyways, you you know you do not have to teach a toddler to be selfish. Everything is mine, 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 mine. Um, and so you don't have to teach him any of this. It just it just comes out, right? And so according to the, the Christian doctrine of the fall, we are not born the way God intended us to be. No one is. There are only three people in human history that ended up the way that God wanted them to be. I mean, at least at first, Adam and Eve, they came out without any sin, right? And they lost that, clearly. Um, but Jesus, Jesus had no original sin on him. And so we are all born broken and messed up. We all have sinful attractions. Every single one of us are born with sinful inclinations, predispositions. Um, There are people that try to deny this. I've met them, um, but it's just obvious. We all bend in a sinful way, in a sinful way, attracted to things. And this is what the Christian church has literally taught for over 2,000 years. This is historic Christianity. It's biblical Christianity. It makes sense of reality and um, raising children. And so, you know, because of this, we're all born with sinful attractions. And even people who are heterosexual, they have desires and attractions to have intimacy apart from the marriage covenant. Teenagers struggle with this. Everybody has sinful attractions. Every single person in this room has to give up on acting on a desire or an inclination or an attraction that they have. Everybody does. So we all have to deny ourselves and that's what it means to follow Christ. Follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself. And there is benefit of that. But those who want to follow Jesus and serve him deny our sinful inclinations. Our, what we, you know, first do. I mean, if, if people did not deny their sinful inclinations, there'd be fist fights everywhere. Because people, you know, you get angry, the first thing you want to like, sometimes people want to smack somebody. But we, we, we control those things. We have sinful dispositions, especially if you're Irish like me. Don't interpret that as I'm going to go around and to hit everybody. I'm not saying that. That was too much information. Um, but, you know, we all struggle with things. That's my point. We all have sinful inclinations. We all are bent in a certain way. And so when we come to Jesus, we deny those inclinations, those attractions. Western civilization... Marriage, the family unit, is literally held together by the grace of God to help us control ourselves. Verse 24, Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. There's no free pass on that. We all do it. We all give it. When we're here to worship God on Sunday, we come up, you can ask anybody here. We've all given up something. And take up his cross and follow me. Is it easy to deny yourself? Is taking up a cross, like, pleasant? Pretty much no. Worst form of torture ever. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So yeah, we deny ourselves. We find life. Serving others, caring for others, loving others, when it hurts, is actually, according to Jesus, life-giving. It's transformational. It's beautiful. And so when people give in to their initial sinful attractions, it hurts them. Going outside of God's plan hurts you. It causes pain, shame, depression, despair, and anxiety. And, um, One of the major things we all struggle with here, we all struggle to believe what God says. We all struggle to trust in God, just as Adam and Eve struggled to believe God in the garden. Let me ask you, who should you trust more? Your feelings, which often can lead you astray, which often can, you know, know, what you're feeling one second, you're not feeling the other. Or should we trust our feelings? Or should we trust the infinite creator of the universe who knows all truths, who created us? Who, what would you rather trust? I, I'm going with God here. He's infinite. The, the best thing to know how something works or how it's supposed to function is to ask its creator. And the Lord is our creator. He knows better than we do we're often wrong and so we should we have every reason to say his word is trustworthy and the instructions he gives us is not to torture us or to like cause deep pain but to bring completeness wholeness and flourishing to our lives it's not just oh well you know you, you know you do these things you follow these hard things and you oh you avoid going to hell or you avoid condemnation no but the motivation is is Law is greater fullness and flourishing and lasting joy in Jesus Christ. I realize um, that uh, people in our culture will say what I'm telling you this morning is profoundly harmful to people in the LGBT community. It's certainly something you're going to hear because they'll say, well, the Bible teaches, um, this teaching is so harmful to gays that it could cause them to go to Despair and depression and to such a degree that God forbid that they would take their own precious lives. And I want to let you know that I take that very seriously, very seriously, because we as Christians, we are called to unconditionally love, care for our gay neighbors and the people in the lgbt community they're not just like you know a, a cultural war for you to go do it they're not just a statistic they're not just some ideological enemy you know or opponents we need to beat they're not they they're, that's that's a wrong view to have these are people's sons these are people's daughters brothers and sisters who who are in this group and they are struggling these are real people who are hurting and struggling and so they need our love and our kindness and I would hate to think that a message like this would make a person feel and think like their life is no longer worth living. But I am greatly comforted by the insight by Sam Elberry, who himself um, understand. I, I, he has a good understanding of the culture and what's happening here, and I, I, I helps me process a biblical. Biblical teaching here. But he is a pastor, he's an evangelical, and um, he is same-sex attracted. He always had those desires as far back as you could remember, and he is a celibate evangelical pastor, and he has chosen to live a celibate lifestyle, and he finds that very fulfilling serving serving Christ and following him. But this is what he said about the concern to say that historic Christian teaching for the past 2,000 years could cause a person to want to take their own life because they are gay or lesbian. I want to read his statement here. I'm going to read every word of it because I think every word of it is extremely valuable for us to understand what's really going on here. He says, My understanding is that we as evangelicals do not say sex is everything. We are not the ones saying that a life without sex is no life at all. The challenge and the idea that celibacy is in itself harmful means that sex has become an idol. If life without sex is not conceivable for you, it is clearly, it is very clear what is God in your life. He goes on to say, a friend of mine, Andrew Wilson back in the UK, once recently spoke on the issue on why does God care who you sleep with? And a part of his answer was to turn around and say, Why do you care so much with who you sleep with, sleep with? Why is that where you get to draw the line and object to following God? Why is that your one non-negotiable? It strikes me that it is our culture that has made sex into an idol. And it is therefore saying to people, when your sex life is not working out, your life hasn't worked out. It is not the evangelical church, but our society around us that is putting the stakes up that high. And my question is, which perspective is most likely to make them feel like their life is no longer worth living. The perspective that says sex is everything and if you, if it is not fulfilling, then there's just no point. Life without sex is no life at all. Or is it the Christian perspective that should should be saying, should be saying, sex is a wonderful gift from God, but it is just a gift and is no substitute for the giver. We are not the ones saying that a lack of sexual fulfillment is a lack of human fulfillment. And so um, Albury's point is to say the church's messaging, the Bible's teaching is not harmful to uh, gays and lesbians as much as the secular culture's message around about us saying that sex is everything, physical intimacy, that's where life is at, that's the best part of life or that it, your life is not worth living if you don't have that. And it's a culture uh, that's encouraging people to find their identity in their sexual preferences, in their attractions, rather than finding their identity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I can prove this just with one question about the Bible and its teaching. According to the scripture, this is every Sunday school answer, who is the most complete and perfect person who has ever lived? We all know this. The magic word is Jesus. And was Jesus married? Jesus was a single, celibate dude. The Apostle Paul, also celibate and single, and he doesn't call it a horrible, wretched, awful existence. In 1 Corinthians 7, he calls it a gift. Singleness is a gift from God and is something to be cherished because you are living your life most like Jesus did, who is your Savior, and now, I'm not saying marriage is terrible, you know? You know, like, oh, well, single, this is a gift. It's like people are like, well, I don't want to get married anymore. You know? <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm saying they're both equally gifts, is what I'm saying. They're both equally gifts, and one's not better than the other. But you wouldn't get that from our culture, would you? It's very geared around families, um, and people make their marriages into idols often, their kids into idols, and it has not been. Um, emphasize at our culture how vital single people are, how important they are to our culture, and how important they are to the Christian church, because they are very important. Because when you are single, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, you're not worried about worldly affairs, you're not worried about your family. Your concern is the church and serving the church. The church becomes your family. The church becomes a place where you can really invest yourself in as did the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about it. Who made the biggest impact in the church ever? It was Jesus and the Apostle Paul, pretty much. They, I mean, they're, they, the New Testament is really geared around them, and we're talking about two single celibate dudes. And so my answer is that it is really clear. That the Bible teaches that sex is on everything, that singleness is a legitimate way to be and to live, and that we, as a church, need to stop supporting the culture. The last question that we'll get from a teaching like this is people act like homosexuality is a sin that's so different, and I think this will expose this. People say, well, you know, Nate, how should I talk to my gay friends about Jesus? How do I talk to my gay friends about the Lord? My answer is surprisingly simple. is the same way you talk to your friends who are living with their girlfriends. It's the same way you talk to a greedy, rich person. You tell them about Jesus. You tell them about the gospel. You show them the love of the Savior. All those things are the same. They have problems. They're people like you and me. They have problems just like everybody else. Not in some sort of special category. Should you focus on their homosexuality? No. No, no, you shouldn't. Absolutely not. Because that is not their biggest problem. That, that is not the root of their problem. According to Romans 1, the root of their problem, the root of all of our problems is unbelief. That is a source of gay behavior. Of all behavior is unbelief. My behavior, my bad behavior is a source of unbelief. This was the biggest problem in the garden. It's our biggest problem we have today. And it is such a a, a problem, as a matter of fact, that the Bible teaches that um, there is only one unforgivable sin. And that is complete and total rejection of God all throughout your life. That is the one sin that cannot be forgiven, is complete and total rejection of God, non even unto your dying breath. The Bible does not say, well, if you are, you know, same-sex attracted and, you know, you're just, you're destined for hell. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible doesn't even say if you're same-sex attracted and you act on that behavior and you slip, that you're going down. The Bible does not teach that you can be forgiven for everything. The one unforgivable sin in the Bible is unbelief because that is ultimately the penultimate source of our problems, the source of our sin. And it cannot be forgiven according to Jesus in Luke Twelve, eight 8 through 10, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The final and total rejection of God unto your dying breath, that will not be forgiven. And so that's the one unforgivable sin because that's a, that's a source, that's the, that's the root of all that. If, if no one ever changes from total and complete unbelief, then yes, they will not go to heaven, they will go to hell. And that's the cause of our sin in our lives as even believers, we struggle with unbelief. And so we struggle with sin. And that means all doubting, all not trusting in God, that is what's producing sin in our lives right now. And something that comes from faith is not sinful. It's never sinful, but it is unbelief. Unbelief is the root. And Paul emphasizes this again in Romans 14 through 23. But whoever has doubted or doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. That's the issue. But whoever does, But whatever does not proceed from faith, which means unbelief, is sin. That's the root. So whenever you sin in your life, something is going on in your life where you are trusting an idol more than God or you don't believe in God's instructions are best for you just like Adam and Eve didn't believe that in the garden. And so you don't do the right thing because you don't ultimately trust God. You don't believe the gospel enough. And so that's the biggest problem all people have is unbelief. And so what we need to be doing to tell our our gay neighbors to trust in Jesus, that's what they need to hear. They need to hear that their identity and value and worth is not in their preferences, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, We should not, I do not, we should strive not to find our identity in our gender, in our race, in our sexual orientation, in my status in society, in anything, my gender, anything, or even my marriage. I should not find identity in anything else, but in Christ and Christ alone. This is how Paul puts it best in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Whatever your status is, whatever your um, ethnic makeup is, there is no male and female, whatever your gender is, for all are one in Jesus Christ. That is where our identity is rooted, is in Jesus. So unbelief is the most harmful sin When we were not fully trusting in Jesus, we're trusting in another identity, serving another idol that's going to bring pain and sadness and despair to our hearts. And so oftentimes people who struggle with sexual sin um, find its source in an idol or unbelief and they are finding their identity in those fallen desires rather than in Jesus. That is really the root of the problem. Solution is the gospel, that is it. And um, that's just not like, I guess I'd, I don't struggle with same-sex attraction, I wouldn't know. But this is even according to uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who uh, was a a lesbian college professor, and in her case, she became a Christian. She gave up that lifestyle and she became a pastor's wife. It's an incredible story. You can see her all throughout uh, YouTube helping people in the LGBT community. She's a very uh, wonderful speaker and really helpful. And I want to emphasize this before I go on about this issue of identity. Um, She became a Christian. Because a pastor and a pastor's wife was kind to her, showed her hospitality, showed her love and care. You see, that is what's effective. Love, kindness, being a good Samaritan, that's what transforms people. And she saw that. She said, oh, Christians are not that bad. They they love people. They love me. That's what your gay neighbor needs. And so it converted her, brought her to Christ. They shared the love of Jesus with her, and it changed her life. And so um, this is what she said. She now speaks to people about this. This is what she said was the thing that went on when she became an when she was an unbeliever, and she was a lesbian college professor, and she became a believer. This is what she had to say. Why is sexual sin so hard to deal with? Because often sexual sin becomes a sin of identity. My new Affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus. Jesus. I was converted not out of homosexuality, but out of unbelief. So that's our problem, is unbelief. You're like, oh, come on, Nate. Well, I'm, I'm a, I believe in Jesus. How is my problem unbelief? Well, it is, actually. But you do believe, as a man in the Gospel of Mark says, he sees his broken son and he sees Jesus. Um, and Jesus, I can heal him, you know? And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. We are all very much like that. We are all partial unbelievers. And evidence of that fact is that we still struggle with sin because that's the source of our unbelief, is 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 our is that's the source of our sin is our unbelief. And so the only solution according to the Bible? How do you cure unbelief? How do you lessen? How do you chip away at unbelief? Well, the answer the Bible gives in Romans chapter 10 is by the preaching of the gospel. Faith uh, comes by hearing. Faith grows by hearing, by the preaching of the gospel. And so if you are struggling with unbelief, you need to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again, that your identity is not in yourself, but in Jesus, that you don't base your salvation on your works, but on Jesus's work, that you are grounded and rooted in his perfect, everlasting righteousness that was bought for you on the cross and earned throughout his life, that that is your identity, that is your only hope, and that is what ultimately chips away and lessens your, your partial unbelief. And that's a message which transforms people, is the message of the gospel, is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says this, he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul had one thought in his mind because it was that one thought that chipped away at his sin and unbelief is the gospel, that it is finished. That is what ultimately grows us, transforms us, and brings us in greater communion with our Lord and Savior. And that is why Paul said, I don't want to know anything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let that ever be our message and let that always be the cure to our deep struggles that we face every day. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray.